Our sermon text is Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12, which can be found in your pew Bible on page 824. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray together. Lord, it's the power of the cross that is the greatest need for every heart you've assembled here. And I pray that that is precisely what you would show us, what you would give us. It is a justifying power It is a cleansing power. It is a pardoning power. It is a rescuing power. It is a condemnation lifting power. It is a shame removing power. It is a healing, restoring, reconciling power. How grateful I am to you, Father, that you are the biographer of every person here. You've written every single one of the days of their lives in your book before they'd lived even one of those days, and you know exactly what you want to accomplish today for them. I thank you that the Lord Jesus is not only a willing Savior, but sufficient in every respect. It is his power and his willingness that are my confidence this morning. And so I pray for the the grace of strengthened faith in my brothers and sisters, and I pray for the grace of salvation, new, newly born faith to be given to those not yet in Christ. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, you've been very patient. Thank you. Uh, This is the fourth and what for now uh, will be the last uh, message on marriage from these passages. Um, you know, I look back on uh, w- the preaching map of the last year, and we will have spent uh, seven weeks altogether within the last uh, 10 months on the subject of, actually the last nine months on the topic of marriage. And <clears throat> I, I don't make any apologies for that because it is such a critical issue uh, certainly at the macro level in our culture and understanding what it means uh, for us to be uh, Christians, what it means to be people of the gospel. Make no mistake, my friends, uh, marriage is a battleground that is so much more profound uh, than culture or tradition or politics. Because what's at stake, as I've been trying to emphasize 
over these weeks is clarity of the, about the gospel. And we're going to be given, however the cultural tide shifts in our, in our country and in the world, we are being handed in God's providence an opportunity to, to just speak with such truth about the nature of the gospel. Friends, we, in God's providence, we live in a wonderful time. And I believe that with all my heart. And we, as God's people, we need to do our homework really well on uh, marriage, and, it, and it, it will pay dividends. But then at the, also at the personal level, uh, these topics are just so relevant to every one of us here, and I thank you for your desire to, to understand uh, with me what, what God's uh, word has to say about this topic. And this morning, I want to focus uh, with you on, uh, on the implications of our Lord's teaching in this passage in three particular areas. Uh, In some ways, they're the hardest areas, Uh, the the urgency of what it means to be equally yoked, Christians being married to Christians. And then secondly, the the unmaking of marriage, uh, divorce. And third, uh, the issue of remarriage. And what we're going to see is that in each one of these areas, uh, they flow directly out of how our Lord Jesus defines marriage. And I know that these are very large topics. They're very emotionally charged uh, for all of us. And so I want to acknowledge from the very beginning that I know there are going to be questions that you have that are on your heart that I'm not going to address. The, any one of those topics is larger than the scope uh, of a single sermon, even one of my sermons, okay? And, and to, so, so let alone all three of them. So I get that. Uh, but but um, I, I want to emphasize something very important. I'm going to say it uh, at least a couple more times during the sermon, but I want you to hear this uh, now. Uh, uh, two things. One is uh, we're going to be talking about God's boundaries, and, and there are a lot of people in here who dread that because they, they know that they've lived on the other side of those boundaries. Friends, you know what? You're not alone. 100% of us are on the other side of God's boundaries. Hello! And hallelujah at the same time. You're not alone. But secondly, for those questions that, that are raised and implicated in these topics, uh, you're not left to yourself. You're not alone either. Because God in his mercy, the Lord Jesus Christ in his mercy, has given us elders. Elders to whom we are supposed to come with questions. Who whom Christ has appointed for your spiritual oversight, for my spiritual oversight. And so we're not left to ourselves to wrestle with these questions. So this morning, I want to think with you at least at a, at a big picture level about these topics. I want to do that under three headings, uh, three pieces of what I believe are good news that Jesus brings us out of our passage. And the first is the good news of no boundaries, and I'll explain what that means. Secondly, the good news of boundaries. And then third, the good news for boundary breakers. So let's think first about uh, what our Lord Jesus shows us about the good news of no boundaries. And what I mean by this is in setting forth the, the definition, in showing us or setting forth the definition of marriage in this passage, Jesus is also showing us something else, that his... that that there are no boundaries to his lordship. It's very important to see that, uh, to pull back and look at the forest of what he's doing before we start examining the trees. This is a huge implication of what Jesus is saying here. There are absolutely no boundaries to the lordship of Jesus Christ. In defining marriage, Jesus is doing much more than defining marriage, my friends. He is defining the scope of his lordship. Think of it. These topics, marriage, divorce, remarriage, family, children, romance, all those topics, friends, those are the areas where we think, where we are convinced, where our culture teaches us. Those are the most hallowed, sacred, private, personal 
territory in anyone's life. They represent the place where we feel most entitled to say to any voice except our own, hands off, that's mine. And in fact, our culture teaches us that, doesn't it? And this is where Jesus and our culture are in agreement. In the center of our lives, both Jesus and our culture say there's a throne. There's a throne. Where Jesus and our culture disagree is in identifying who the sovereign is who's seated on that throne. Our culture says that hallowed ground, that that realm of the most intimate longings and dreams and the most intimate and private, as it were, decisions, our culture says, you know what? You're the king on that throne and no one, not even the government, can step in there. And Jesus says, no, I'm Lord on that throne. It's amazing. In speaking into these areas, friends, I want you to be in... When Jesus speaks into these areas, I want you to be in awe. To be in awe of his authority. To tell us, here is one who is saying, I tell you what the boundaries for your sexuality are. I tell you what the purpose of your hormones is. I tell you what the purpose of your dreams is. I tell you what the significance of romance is and what family is to mean for you. I set the boundaries. It is astonishing to me, and it is no wonder to me why he is is opposed so violently today. He's laying claim here, friends, to what is rightfully his, his rightful authority over the most intimate parts of our life. And not just his rightful authority, but he is asserting his rightful priority in each of those areas. He's not willing to just take a place in our bedrooms. He is demanding that we recognize that he, our bedrooms are his throne room. He is not willing to take a place in our understanding of romance and what marriage means and what singleness means and what it means to be divorced or to be remarried. He's not willing to have a voice in that discussion. He is asserting that it is his voice that is to take priority there. Friends, we're his disciples. And it is his purpose. He speaks to us as our creator and as our redeemer. And so he's doubly entitled to not just speak with authority into these areas of our lives, but to assert his priority in them. And of course, this is not confined to these areas of marriage and sexuality and divorce and remarriage. What's true in these arenas is true in every other arena of our lives. So you're saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm within God's boundaries. But friends, what about your bank account? And what about your work life? And what about your friendships and your parenting? What about your, your, the, way you, the way you steward your schedule? What about your abilities? What about your relationships with other people in the body of Christ? What about your retirement? What about your college education? What about the way you think about your future? Friends, in all those areas, not just in the bedroom, But in every one of those rooms, Jesus is declaring to us as he speaks into this area that those are all intended to be his throne room. And we will never understand anything that he says unless we recognize that because Jesus looks us in the eye, friends, and he says the five words we hate the most. You are not your own. And we hate those words. But we should not hate those words. Because you know what the gospel means? The gospel means, that cross means 
that, that God has taken those, those five words that are the most threatening words a human being can ever hear, you are not your own, and changes those five words into the most wonderful words we could ever hear. You see, Jesus' lordship has no boundaries, and that's wonderful news, my friends. Think of it. He is coming in to this most intimate, central, defining area of our lives, and he's saying, I'm king here. This matters to me. You're not alone. This matters to me. It is important. You're right to feel its strength and its power. You're right. But I am stronger and I am more powerful, and I want to meet you in these very places. And I want to show you not simply that I have authority, not simply that I have priority here, but that I am here in this area, in all of my power, in all of my willingness. I'm willing to enter this most intimate part of your life and to bring all of my healing power to touch this area in your life because of the five most wonderful words that a human being could ever hear when they come from the lips of Jesus Christ. You are not your own. You're mine. Oh, friends, to be ruled by the one who gave himself up for us. To be addressed by the one who held nothing back. There are no boundaries to his lordship, friends, because there were no boundaries to his love. He did not. When you look at that cross, what I want you to see is a Lord who was unwilling to stay behind any boundaries whatsoever to purchase the redemption of his people. He was unwilling to stay behind the boundary that separated creator from creature. No, he crossed that boundary. He was unwilling to stay on the other side of the boundary between the holy and sinners. He crossed that boundary in the person of Jesus Christ, even becoming sin on the cross. He was unwilling, he was unwilling to stay behind the boundary between eternal eternal life and eternal death. No, friends, he crossed that boundary in Jesus Christ. There is a love that no love you can ever find on this earth will ever match. There are no boundaries to his lordship. There are no boundaries to what he has been willing to do for you and me. No lengths to which he was unwilling to go. No depths of his people's need to which he was unwilling to descend. Friends, I want you to hear this. I want you to believe it this morning. Jesus Christ is unwilling to leave any part of you to yourself. And that is the best news you could ever hear. There is no pain afflicting you. There is no betrayal that you've endured, and there is no failure of your own making, my friends, that can ever prove an impenetrable boundary to that Lord. So that's where we begin the good news of no boundaries, and that is the, the good news that leads to our second good news, which is the good news of boundaries. I love to apparently contradict myself in my heading so that you have to scratch your head. I work hard to do that. You think I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. So now, now we get into the three boundaries that Jesus draws, the three boundaries that Jesus' boundary-less lordship establishes for us in three areas, the making of marriage, the re, or the unmaking of marriage and divorce, and then remarriage. And let me summarize what our Lord's instructions are this way in all these areas, and I've said it in a previous week, and let me say it again. No one is free to marry whomever they want. You're not your own. No one is free to divorce whenever you want, whyever you want. You're not your own. And no one is free to remarry whomever you want, whenever you want, whyever you want. You are not your own. Hallelujah. Remember the role of the church. 
You're not by yourself with these issues. The Lord Jesus has has entrusted the keys of his kingdom. We saw this in chapter 16 to his church. And in our particular context, that means that he has entrusted your spiritual oversight, my spiritual oversight to elders. And especially in the areas of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, if you are a member of IPC, you are neither left to yourself nor at liberty to make those momentous decisions apart from the oversight of your elders. If you get married, let's just be real practical. If you get married or propose to get married, we need to have a conversation. Because Jesus is king. If you are wondering whether there are biblical grounds for divorce, we need to have a conversation. If you're wondering whether you are at liberty in the Lord to get remarried, we need to have a conversation. Friends, that's what it means. So, let's let's think now about the making of marriage and what it means to be equally yoked. This is the first question, is whom we may marry. And let me clarify right off the bat that, that I am... I'm not talking, some of you, some of you uh, were converted after you were married. Praise God. That's a wonderful thing. And so you find yourself in a situation that's very familiar in the New Testament. Timothy's mother found herself in a situation like this. You're a Christian and you're married to a non-Christian. And scripture is very clear for you. You are to stay married to your non-Christian spouse as long as your non-Christian spouse wants to remain with you. Praise God. Whether your non-Christian spouse realizes it or not, and and I encourage you to look at 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 12 through 16 this afternoon, whether your non-Christian spouse realizes it or not, whether they realize it or not, and whether you really understand the glory of it or not, God says through the Apostle Paul that that non-Christian household is in some sense a zone of God's special favor because you are one of his own. So your ministry to your non-Christian spouse is hugely significant, and I don't want anything you hear me say today or that you think I said today to in any way uh, downplay the importance of the ministry that God has given you. It's a massively important ministry. What I'm talking about when I talk about equally yoked is people who are Christians, who are already Christians, Uh, thinking about whom they can marry. And scripture is very clear in this area, friends. This is a boundary that is black and white. You are only permitted as a Christian to marry another Christian. There's just no discussion about this. And you know, one of the very practical implications, I'm going to show you from 2 Corinthians 6 in a minute how God thinks about this issue. But let me just, before I get any further, let me just, let me just uh, address a very practical issue. And that's this. If, if we begin with the premise from Scripture that a Christian is not permitted to marry a non-Christian, then that ultimate boundary has massive and immediate implications for every other kind of potential romantic involvement with a non-Christian. If you can't give your heart to a non-Christian in marriage, friends, you shouldn't ever be dating a non-Christian. Can I say it any more plainly than that? There's a spectrum between being equally yoked and being unequally yoked. I want you to think about this as a picture with me. At one extreme is being unequally yoked, married to a non-Christian in violation of God's very clear revelation. At the other extreme is being equally yoked to another Christian. When you are dating a non-Christian, you are not neutral, friends. You're not looking this way. You have your back to that end of the spectrum, and you are aiming toward this end of the spectrum. And don't fool yourself. You're not strong enough to handle this. Friends, did you fill your car up recently at the gas station? Did you do that? How many of you did that recently? Okay, did you smoke while you did that? 
Did you smoke while you did that? Did you, did you play with matches while you did that? You think I'm joking. We, you know, about two weeks ago, I pulled up into the racetrack, and I was going to fill my car up. And there was this guy smoking. And the first thing I did was move my car. I don't care how careful or wise you think you are. That is a situation you're not supposed to be in. Evangelistic dating is a lie. It is just a euphemism for idolatrous dating. I've been a Christian for 32 years. I've been a pastor for 13. I have seen this story countless times. There, is, there, is very, there are very few boundaries in God's uh, word that are more, more frequently and casually and dangerously overlooked than this boundary, my friends. And this story always ends the same way. The spiritual tide always sinks. It never rises. I have never seen evangelistic dating work, not even once. Is it any wonder that when you read the Old Testament, over and over and over again, there is this urgency coming from God. He feels so strongly about this. There is this urgency coming from God saying, you must not intermarry. You must not intermarry. You must not intermarry. And when Solomon intermarries, the king, when he intermarries, not just once, but many times, it's very clear that the writer of Kings, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says that is the reason that his heart was turned away from the Lord. What makes you think that you can handle what Solomon could not? Oh, friends, I urge you, and I, I think particularly of my young friends here, but you know, it doesn't, it doesn't apply just to my young friends. It applies to anybody who is even thinking about being married, whether, whether it's remarried. And so I want you to think about the Lord's Prayer. How can you pray, lead us not into temptation when you are running toward it? You can't. And of course, how, there's, there, it's, it's very easy to understand why if you cross this boundary as a Christian, it's very easy to understand. This does not require a rocket scientist. I can understand this. So can you. If you cross that very clear black and white boundary in God's word, how could the spiritual tide not sink? Because what you've just said to your uh, potential spouse who's a non-Christian is, well, Jesus is Lord about everything except this area that I really care about. You're actually Lord. So she or he has no sense of the gravitas of Jesus. Friends, look with me at 2 Corinthians 6. I'm not exaggerating when I am speaking about the urgency here. I feel very strongly about this because for me, this is not a hypothetical peril. I've looked people in the eye. I've spent, I've spent months, the elders have spent months with different people over the years on this issue. It is deadly. And this has nothing to do with non-Christians being inferior to Christians. Oh my goodness, that is not the issue. The issue is, is Jesus entitled to your greatest and deepest love and loyalty? That's the issue. So look at 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. There's not any wiggle room in that. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Now, friends, I want you to notice two things about what Paul does there. He's trying to drive home the urgency of this issue of not being unequally yoked with a non-Christian. And he does it in two ways. First, you notice there are six 
descriptions of relationship, right? So you've got yoked, you've got partnership, you've got fellowship, you've got accord, you've got portion, you've, and you've got agreement. And then, notice, you have six pairs of opposites, which are incompatible, right? So it's not like you ever are, well, this non-Christian is pretty close to a Christian. Look at the terms. See, see, this is when you must not be wise in your own eyes, but you must be wise through the eyes of God. Look at how God describes the, the differences between a Christian and a non-Christian. There's a believer and an unbeliever, verse 14. There's righteousness and lawlessness. There's light and darkness. There's Christ with Belial, or essentially uh, the devil. There's a, a believer with an unbeliever again. There's the temple of God with idols. Friends, there's, there, those aren't close. Those aren't within spitting distance of one another. And so it raises the question, when you're tempted to think about this particular area, you need to think through what does it mean to be a Christian? What possible agreement do you have as a Christian with a non-Christian? Whatever the areas of agreement are, whatever the compatibilities that form the basis for your potential attraction romantically to this non-Christian, I guarantee you they are superficial because you don't agree about the character of God. You don't agree about the reality of sin. You don't agree about the beauty of God. You don't agree about the love of God. You don't agree about the holiness of God or the faithfulness of God. You don't agree about any question that pertains to the weightiest aspects of reality and that you also subjectively profess as a Christian. You have no agreement. What portion do you have with a non-Christian? How are your futures or your presence uh, similar? Think this through. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, slow down. Think about what has happened to you because God's Spirit has broken into your life. You are so different from them. You are a child of God. They are, by definition, children of wrath. For you, there is no condemnation. For them, there is only condemnation. You have no portion with them. Your futures are utterly different. And if you doubt me, just think about what will be said at their funeral and what will be said at yours if you're a Christian. Friends, this is a serious area, and God is very clear. Now let's move to thinking about the unmaking of marriage and divorce. And what I, what I want to say at the front end is two things. This area is very simple, and it's very complex at the same time. It's simple because there are only two grounds for divorce that Scripture recognizes as legitimate. One of them is cited by the Lord Jesus in Matthew 19, and that's sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, and the word that Jesus uses is porneia, which is the word, obviously a Greek word from which we get pornography. Porneia is a broader term than adultery. It is uh, any kind of sexual infidelity. That's the first ground that's legitimate, which Jesus himself cites in verse 9. But the second legitimate ground for biblical divorce is willful desertion. And that is, is addressed by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16. Those are very clear there are only two grounds for a legitimate divorce in the scriptures, and I'll explain why in a minute. But, so, so in that sense, it's simple. But in, in another sense, it's complex because every marriage is a story, and the facts are unique in each story. So, what exa for example, what exactly constitutes porneia? What constitutes sexual immorality? What constitutes willful desertion? Is there repentance? 
What are the prospects for restoration in any given situation? All of these, and there are many other related questions as well, are exactly why we should rejoice that our Lord Jesus has not left us to ourselves but has to, to work through those questions, but has entrusted the keys of his kingdom to his church, and in our context, like I said before, has given us elders whom he has charged to walk alongside us in faith and hope and love. You're not alone. Now, one of the things that's important to see about what Jesus does here when he addresses the question of divorce, and this is what his response to the Pharisees shows us, is that, and this is important to see, that our view of divorce will be the mirror image of our view of marriage. So what we believe about the unmaking of marriage will be directly connected to and will necessarily reveal what we believe to be true about the making of marriage. That's why when the Pharisees approach him and ask him about a question, ask him a question about divorce, Jesus immediately goes not to Deuteronomy 24, which is what they're thinking about, but he goes all the way back, because that was a passage that regulated divorce, he goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, because you cannot know what God's mind is about divorce except insofar as you understand what he thinks about marriage to begin with. Now our culture, when you think about what we've been taught by our culture, our culture is of one mind about both divorce and marriage. What it thinks about divorce is really the mirror image of what it thinks about marriage. And in our culture, marriage has been degraded to the... St- I and mean, this is the best we can say about it. It's a contract. But it's interesting, as I was thinking about this, because, you know, it really... You know, I think our culture can't really make up its mind. Because on the one hand, which is what you would expect, right? Because on the one hand, our culture saying, marriage is a civil right. Give it, give it, give it to me. And on the other hand... Our culture is saying, we will, we will treat this particular uh, species of contract as functionally the least consequential contract we ever enter. It's very easy to get into it, and it's very easy to get out of it. In fact, there is more stigma. Think about what this says about us as a culture, that there is more stigma attached to the breach of a mortgage than there is to the breach of a marriage. There are more social consequences in many ways. Marriage in our culture is an easy entrance, an easy exit. It's because the view of marriage that we have is that it is nothing more than an alliance of convenience. When two people's self-interests overlap in the wonderful discovery that, hey, I can be me and you can be you and we can be me and you, at the same time. And so it makes sense then that when that alliance no longer throws off dividends that outweigh its liabilities, it makes sense then that of course you would break that up. Low view of marriage at the front end, alliance of convenience, then the threshold, if the threshold to get in and what it is is low, then the threshold to get out is going to be very low. And that's why we say really dumb things like irretrievably broken and irreconcilable differences. Right? When the relationship has lost its utility to me, then I am justified in leaving the relationship. But Jesus casts a vastly different vision, doesn't he? The making and unmaking. Oh, friends, I want you... I, You know what I'm trying trying to do right now? I'm trying to invest in your life 20 years from now. Because that's what God wants. God wants you to be armed. He wants you to be armed. You know the most amazing story? I have not been able to figure out where to put it in any of these messages. It was always on one of my post-its by my computer. And like every week, I can't figure out where to put that in. Well, I'm just putting it in right now. Have you ever heard of B.B. Warfield? He was a great theologian, reformed theologian at Princeton Theological Seminary in the 19th century into the 20th century. And he got married in 1876 to his, uh, the love of his life, Annie. And they spent their honeymoon in Germany. 
where, where he had been doing graduate work. And while they were on their honeymoon one day, they were hiking. And they got caught in an electric storm. And it's not clear exactly what happened. Either Annie was uh, actually struck by lightning or she was so terrified by being right in the heart of the electric storm. Nobody is really sure. Warfield didn't write about this directly. But, but what is true is what the aftermath of that was, which was she was basically an invalid for the rest of their marriage from the honeymoon on. They never had children. She died in 1915, 39 years later. He loved her, cared for her every single day of their marriage. He never was more than 20 miles away from her. He worked primarily out of the house and would only leave his home to do his lectures on campus. Now, friends, that is a Christ-reflecting marriage. That is not an alliance of convenience. It's beautiful. Why we would ever listen to anything our culture has to say about marriage just escapes me. Jesus' vision is so beautiful. Here is a union that God makes that's one flesh between two people, but really there are three parties because God himself has put his spirit into it. And guess what? After Adam and Eve, 100% of those one flesh unions are made up of two sinners. Now that has really big implications because you know what that means? That means that the presence of sin in the marriage doesn't doom the marriage. You got that? God is not surprised by the sin of your spouse, and neither should you be. He puts you together. So you don't get to invoke, I don't get to invoke my spouse's sin as a reason for me breaking that union. That is absolutely crazy, because when God made the union, what were the building materials of the union? Sinner A, sinner B, putting them together, you add sinner and sinner, you don't get no sinner. You get two sinners in a one flesh union. Oh, that's big. That is so important. Just be realistic in the nature of the case, friends. The best marriage will entail failure, pain, grief, misunderstanding, and at some level, betrayal. Open your eyes. Your spouse is not supposed to replace Jesus Christ in your life. Eve was never given to Adam by God to displace God in Adam's life. No, there must be a different purpose for this union, and it is the displaying of the power of the gospel. Because guess what? You live in a marriage, my Christian brothers and sisters, in which... If you're equally yoked, guess what? You are both holding fast to a gospel which shows us that there in this universe there is no such thing as irreconcilable differences or being irretrievably broken. That is something God never says because the cross puts the lie to that. The most irreconcilable difference on the surface was reconciled, the difference between a holy God and sinful people. He reconciled that in Jesus Christ. The, the, most, the thing that looked like it was the most irretrievably broken in the world, the image of God in the sin of men. Guess what God did in Jesus Christ? He retrieved it. And so two Christian spouses, there's nothing that you face together that the gospel's power is not sufficient to overcome. The resources are there, but friends, the reality is that divorce does happen even between Christians. And and, and we need to think about the logic in what the Lord has described here because because of what marriage is in its making, okay, a one flesh union, then only something that actually destroys that union can justify its unmaking. And inconvenience and the mere sin of your spouse and the failure of your spouse and the betrayal of your spouse by itself, those things do not 
mean that the one flesh union has been broken. There are only two things that God declares break that one flesh union. The one is sexual immorality, and the second is willful desertion, like I was explaining before. Okay? But let me bring those two grounds together now into a couple of pastoral observations about divorce. What this means, first, is that divorce is sometimes legitimate, but never necessary. Sometimes legitimate, according to God's word, but never necessary. You see, even Jesus says here, God allowed you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning, it was not so. Sometimes legitimate, but never necessary. It is never commanded. The second thing to say about divorce is that it is always a failure. Always. Every divorce is a failure, at least in this sense. God's design for marriage as a lifelong one flesh union has not been upheld. Whatever the reason, I am not assigning blame for that failure in making that statement. I am simply saying what Jesus is saying in Matthew 19. From the beginning, it was not so. It is not because of the failure of God's heart. It is the failure of man's heart. You may be betrayed by a spouse who has committed sexual immorality in violation of their marriage vows. You may be uh, on the other side of a spouse who's willfully deserted you. Guess what? That's a failure. It is not, I'm not saying it's a failure on your part. I'm saying it's a failure on their part. And I'm saying it's a failure of God's vision for the union. So divorce is never to be seen as a victory. There are some times where it is the only option that, that you are given. But it must always be approached as the very, very last resort. And you must never enter into that analysis by yourself. This is why God gives you the church. And then finally, remarriage. The same first principle applies to remarriage that applies to marriage and divorce. We are not free to do what we want, but only what God wants. And remarriage comes up in two scenarios, after divorce and after widowhood, a spouse's death. And Jesus addresses the specific case of marriage following a divorce in verse 9. But notice what he says. He's talking about marriage, a remarriage after an illegitimate divorce, and he says, if you do that, you've committed adultery. So then that raises a very practical question that I have been asked so many times over the year as a pastor, over the years as a pastor, by people who've been remarried, and they're saying, They've asked me, well, does that mean that my second marriage is a, in a perpetual state of adultery? No, I don't think the answer to that is yes. Uh, what Jesus is saying is that the second marriage may begin in adultery, but it does not continue in adultery as long as you remain married to that same spouse. And in fact, Jesus seems to acknowledge very interesting. Jesus acknowledges the binding covenantal nature of that second marriage when he uses the word marry in verse 9. And of course, if you've been divorced because of biblically legitimate grounds, you are free to remarry in the Lord. And the same is true if you've been widowed or are a widower. Now let's, let's think finally about God's good news for boundary breakers. There are two implications of the gospel that I want to make sure are very clear here at the end, and then I want to show you a picture. And the first implication of the gospel is this. We are all boundary breakers. I, friends, I don't know. Maybe in your particular story, there's a, there's a un, being unequally yoked in, in violation of God's will and, and maybe a, a, an unbiblical divorce and maybe an unbiblical remarriage. And I want to say to you, you know what? None of us is a spiritual virgin. None of us has preserved or protected our spiritual chastity. None of us here has kept ourselves pure for the lover 
of our souls. We are all spiritual adulterers because we're all idolaters. We've all been unequally yoked to our sin. So I stand and I am, I am in the gospel. I am, uh, I am wanting to say from a very full and sincere heart that I stand shoulder to shoulder and heart to heart alongside my brothers and sisters who haven't honored God's boundaries for marriage, divorce, and remarriage because neither have I. None of us has. We're all boundary breakers. And you know what the gospel is? The gospel is good news for boundary breakers. And that good news is so good. It's more powerful. It's more powerful than the worst truth of your and mine boundary breaking, right? Take heart, friends. Wrongful marriage, wrongful divorce, wrongful remarriage, none of these are an unforgivable sin. Okay, did you hear me? They are not the unforgivable sin. But don't assume that because they're not the unforgivable sin that the boundaries don't matter. The boundaries do matter. The boundaries are good. They mattered so much to God that no one less than the Son of God himself had to come in order to answer for all the boundaries that we have broken, my friends. And it is just amazing when you think about what the gospel represents because Jesus Christ was the ultimate boundary maker. He's the one who's declaring to us what marriage is, right? And he was the only boundary keeper who ever lived. And yet, what happens in his ministry? What is the climax of Jesus Christ's ministry? That boundary maker gives himself up to be under the wrath of God as the only boundary breaker to take into his own body. This is amazing to me. The, the only one who ever kept all of God's boundaries kept himself pure for one ultimate reason, kept himself for his bride, so that at the climax of his ministry, he would be presenting a pure and spotless offering to God so that he could take in and bear the weight and the curse of all the impurities of his bride in her place. It is an amazing love story. It is absolutely beautiful. It is so full and so complete that there is nobody who hears me this morning for whom that truth does not possess the power to set you free from whatever guilt, whatever shame, whatever bondage to sin you find yourself in this morning. And I want to prove that to you by finishing, showing you a picture. If you'll just hang in there with me for about another five minutes. If you turn with me to John chapter 4, what I want to do is I want to show you your engagement picture. I want to show you every Christian's engagement picture. Now, the Holy Spirit took this particular picture in Samaria in the first century, but in sum and substance, friends, your engagement picture, mine, is absolutely identical. You know this story, right? This is, this is Jesus in Samaria at the well, and look at verse, look at verse 6. <clears throat> so he's at Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So now it's, it's about noon, okay? And Jesus is at a well. And he meets a woman at a well. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, that's a very interesting scene because we've seen it before in the Bible multiple times. A man meets a woman at a well. Let's see, the first time we see that in the Bible is in Genesis 24 when Abraham's servant meets a woman at a well. And then it happens again in Genesis 29 when Jacob meets a woman at a well. And then it happens in Exodus 2 when Moses meets a woman at a well. Now, you know what's interesting? 
in every one of those three examples, that encounter at the well always results in the same thing, a marriage. Abraham's servant finds Isaac's wife. Jacob meets Rachel. Moses meets Zipporah. So friends, when Jesus Christ, Yahweh incarnate, sits at a well and a woman approaches him, this is a marriage scene. Jesus is here looking for his bride. We have been trained by all those prior episodes to recognize that this is God in Samaria looking for a bride. And it's absolutely amazing because he is where he shouldn't be with someone who is in the midst of her shame and her guilt. That's why she's looking, coming to the well at noon when no one else would be there because she is ashamed because of her history. You remember what he says later? He turns the subject to her marital status, doesn't he? He says, go call your husband. And she confesses to him. She has none. She's eligible. She's available. Jesus has come to Samaria to find his bride. Friends, I don't care what your history is. This is a picture of the heart of God. You are not too far gone. This woman at Samaria, she has a history of sexual brokenness. Her theology is completely a mess. She's from the wrong side of the tracks. And guess what? Jesus isn't repulsed by her history. He's drawn to it. He's drawn to it. He finds her in the thick of it. This is Jesus Christ. This is where he looks for a bride. He looks in dirty places. He looks among the people who think that they are too dirty to ever be found or cared for, who think that they have put themselves beyond the reach of God's mercy. And he proves to them again and again and again that they are wrong about that. Do you notice the time marker here? The sixth hour. Do you know the significance of the sixth hour? That was when Luke and Matthew tell us that the darkness began to descend as Jesus was being crucified. As the wrath of God upon Jesus was reaching its apex. You see, I think that what I think John is very deliberately marking that time marker for us because he wants us to make a connection between what happens, what Jesus begins at the well and what he finishes at the cross. He begins, he finds her, he finds her in her shame and in her guilt and he betrothes himself to her and then at another sixth hour, not long after this when he is on the cross as he is enveloped in all the darkness and what's happening there, all of her shame, all of her guilt, all of her history, as well as all the shame and all the guilt of all of his people is now falling upon him. He is being made that shame and that guilt and in their place as their substitute is being judged by his father and he is paying the bride price to gain these people like her. Friends, it's absolute. Now, I know that there are some of you who think I'm exaggerating. There's a first group that thinks I'm exaggerating because you look at this woman and you say, hey, well, that's not my, that's not my engagement picture, Francis. I've actually colored within the lines for my whole Christian life. I don't, my record is better than that. My needs aren't that great, but let me tell you, friends, if that's what you're thinking, I know you're wrong. Because the cross tells me otherwise, and the cross tells you otherwise, because nothing less than the substitutionary death of the Son of God incarnate was necessary to forgive even one of your 
self-righteous sins. Hallelujah. You're wrong. See your sin through the eyes of God from the cross and you'll see that Jesus has found you in your guilt and your shame. He came looking for you in the heart of it and his promise to you was you don't need to have a good history so let it go. I have more than enough history for the both of us. But there's a second group that is also convinced that I'm exaggerating. And you, deep down, are convinced that this news that I'm talking about is too good to be true because you are so dominated by your own evaluation of your bad history. It looms so large in your imagination and on your conscience that you've begun to believe that the gospel is the power of God for everyone else's salvation except yours. And you know what? Hallelujah. The cross tells us both otherwise. When you look at the cross through the eyes of God, what you see is a mercy that cannot be overpowered by the sin of men. There is more mercy in Jesus Christ than sin in any of us, my friends. It is a beautiful thing. So friends, remember what John Owen says. His heart is glad in us without sorrow. And every day while we live is his wedding day. Let's pray. All I can think of, Father, is what you shared with us through Darren from Hosea 2. I will betroth you to me forever. Let that promise ring in our ears. I pray in your son's name.